Micah had made and his priest and went on to Laish against the, against the people at peace and secure. They attacked them with the sword and burned down their city. There was no one to rescue them because they had lived a long way from Sidon and had no relationship with anyone else. The city was in a valley near Beth Rehob. The Danites built, rebuilt the city and settled there. They named Dan after their ancestor Dan, who was born to Israel. Though the city used to be Laish, there the Danites set up for themselves the idol, and Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idol Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. This is God's word. You may be seated. Please uh, open your Bibles to uh, Judges chapter 17. We're going to be looking at the last five chapters tonight. And I just want to say, kind of right at the the front end of the sermon, that the last five chapters of of Judges are some of the most brutal pages that you're going to find in the the entire Bible, not just the Old Testament. But we are going to... uh, uh, slog our way through those uh, those chapters, uh, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 tonight, as we finish uh, our our study on 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 judges and and what judges says to us in the 21st century about our own humanity, about our need for a true king, a real king, a king that can rescue us, a king who is our savior. And let's begin with a word of prayer as we we think about the end of the matter as it pertains to judges. Father, you're great beyond our ability to say it. You're magnificent. You're great. You are gigantic to our minds and hearts and souls. And you not only feel feel the the God-shaped hole in our heart, Father, but you cause the goodness and the joy and the peace to, to overflow out of our heart into our lives and out of our lives into the lives of other people. In ways, Father, that show that You're not just great, but that You're good. Even though at times You are not safe, and at times it is, it is a, a contest of, of wills as to who will be the Lord of our life, our own desires, our own individual self, are You who created everything. You who love us perfectly. You who have shown infinite patience and long-suffering with us, along with, with, with oceans of, of patience and kindness. Thank You for the blessing of every day, and thank You, Father, for the blessing of every minute that we live in Your presence. Every second of every day that we live, of every moment that we live in Your presence, Father. For You are good to us. And we pray that as we, we think about these words tonight and press our mind into this text, that You will help us through eyes that see and ears that hear to be much more profound about our understanding not only of the world that we live in and we as humans who live in this world, but especially of the greatness of Your presence, Fathers, our Creator, Creator, our Shepherd, our Savior, and our Father. So to this end, bless us tonight, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin, I, I uh, really enjoy the writings of, of John Ortberg, a uh, very insightful guy. Uh, he, he's written a book, and I want to read a, a passage out of this book that he has written about priorities. And he says, uh, and I quote, 
When we take our children to the shrine of the Golden Arches, now he's writing about a time when his children were much younger, the kids are grown now, they always lust for the meal that comes with a cheap little prize, a combination christened in a moment of marketing genius, the Happy Meal. You're not just buying fries, McNuggets, and a dinosaur stamp. You're buying happiness. Their advertisements have convinced my children that they have a little McDonald's-shaped vacuum in their souls. Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in a Happy Meal. I try to buy off the kids sometimes. I tell them to order only the food, and I'll give them a quarter to buy a little toy of their own. But the cry goes up, I want a Happy Meal! And all over the restaurant, people crane their necks to look at the tight-fisted, penny-pinching, cheapskate of a parent who would deny a child the meal of great joy. The problem with the Happy Meal is that the happy wears off and they need a new fix. No child discovers lasting happiness in just one. Remember that Happy Meal? What great joy I found there. Happy Meals bring happiness only to the McDonald's. You ever wonder why Ronald McDonald wears that grin? 20 billion Happy Meals. That's why. But when you get older, you don't get any smarter. Your Happy Meals just get more expensive. End of quote. If uh, you spent much time with me talking about the Psalms, uh, there's one Psalm right there in the middle of the Psalms. 150 Psalms, and it is one of my favorites. There's a line from Psalm 73 that I've thought about a lot over the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, the psalm is written by a fellow by the name of Asaph. Who that is, nobody really knows, but he wrote a lot of psalms and a lot of the psalms that I love. Asaph, in, in Psalm 73, is writing about a period in his life when his, when his foot, his, in fact his feet, had almost slipped and he had nearly lost his foothold. That's what he's talking about at the very beginning of the psalm in verse 2. There was a moment, and Asaph knows this, when he nearly had lost God. And he writes towards the end of the psalm, When my heart was grieved and my soul, my spirit embittered. He's talking about his emotional state at this time when God seemed far away and his foot seemed like he was about to slip and he was about to lose hold of, 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 his, of his strong place, of, of his foothold. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. I was a brute beast before you. I have a friend that... Uh, from time to time, writes music out of the Psalms. And we were discussing this Psalm a couple of weeks ago. And uh, it was a reminder of a conversation he and I had had uh, maybe a year earlier where we were talking about some of the things in Psalm 73. And he says for him, uh, this line, I was a brute beast before you, reminds him of human of a human condition called reptilian reversion, which means that at some point we kind of go back to this prehistoric ancient way of dealing with the issues of life. And it's really fight or it's flight. It's a very humanistic way of dealing with trouble. And the psalmist Asaph is saying, at that point when I really felt like everything was slipping and there was distance between you and me, God, 
when I was embittered, when I was senseless, when I was ignorant. I was like a brute beast. Asaph's looking back at that period in his life when God is not very big to him, when God is not magnified in his soul, when God is not uh, gigantic to him. He looks back on that period and it appears to him in his own mind's eye that he had lost his mind. Which brings us uh, to the brutal, bloody conclusion the book of Judges. Which, when you read it, it appears that an entire nation, and not just any nation, it's a nation that came out of Abraham, the man of promise. It is the nation that, that years earlier had been enslaved for four, over four centuries, had been enslaved, literally slaves in Egypt, and by great power and a manifestation, a revelation of the presence of God and His sovereignty over the entire universe, not just Egypt, but over all of nature, had been brought out of that enslavement and had been brought into a promised land. But it looks like the entire nation has lost its mind. Lost its bearing. Lost its way. And there is a refrain that keeps being repeated through the final five chapters that give us a hint as to why. The first one is found in Judges chapter 17, verse 6. You can read along in your Bibles or your smart device. The writer of Judges says, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. In chapter 18 and verse 1, and then again in chapter 19 and verse 1, In those days Israel had no king. In Judges 21 and verse 25, the last verses, the last words, the book of Judges, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Now, throughout the book, we have read that Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's always uh, doing right in our own eyes or doing right in God's eyes. That's part of the, the, the tension in the book. And when we read in the early chapters of the book, all the way to about the end of the book, about chapter 16, the end of, of Samson's life, the idea of doing evil in the eyes of God is code for idolatry. They were... They, they would, they would commit idolatry. They would, they would forsake this allegiance to God. They would not allow, as we talked about this morning, the lordship, what it means for Him to be Lord, to be absorbed into the very core, to swallow it in, to soak it in so that it becomes a part of them. They did not allow that lordship to take hold. And after a time and after a, 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 a period of maybe prosperity or peace, they would begin to wander and they would grow lax again in their relationship with God. And they would end up you know, beginning to follow other gods and allow other gods to rule and to be Lord in their life. And what would happen is that they were, would be given over to an oppressor nation, which would bring them to their senses again and cause them to repent at some level again. We've talked about what repentance means in the book of Judges, the shallowness of it, the superficialness of it. But God in His, His patience would bring them back in. But at the end of the book, basically the Judges end in, at the end of chapter 16 with Samson. And what we have is sort of the, the book basically takes a different narrative. It takes a different writing style than, than following the life of these judges. And what happens is that at this 5,000 foot level of they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, that brings the judgment and, and brings the oppressor nation, which causes the people to cry out to God, which allows God to then to bring in the Savior or the judge or the rescuer to help them. What we see in the last five chapters is what life was like on the ground. 
We have details of what life was like on the ground when the Bible talks about in a more generic way or Judges talks about a more generic way of doing evil in the eyes of God. And so this is, this is what we are capable of. Not just in the ancient Mediterranean world, but even in the 21st century as human beings, this is what we are capable of. And so as we think about Israel as this distance from God is being expanded and they become like this brute beast, we see two things. There are two observations here in these last five chapters. The first is they become spiritually restless. They become spiritually restless. Chapter 17 and 18 revolve around this fellow by the name of Micah. In the first verse of chapter 17, he steals from his mother a thousand one hundred shekels of silver, which, if you have a little footnote on your Bible, is probably very, very accurate. It's about 28 pounds of silver. It's enough silver that you can't pick it up. But then in verse 2, he gives it back to his mother when he hears his mother call down a curse on the thief who stole the 1,100 shekels of silver. Now the point is this. He is a shallow kind of man. Something substantial about him is, 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 is absent. Something substantial is absent in him. He is neither good nor bad. He's just superficial. He's a mile wide and an inch deep. If he was a good man, he would never have taken the 1,100 shekels in the first place. But if he was an evil man through and through, he would never have given it back. And so he is this shallow, superficial, absent of anything substantial kind of individual that is representative of Israel at this point. In response, his mother does something really, really surprising. She's calling down a curse on this thief. Then she realizes it's her son. And then all of a sudden, hey, the Lord bless you. The Lord bless you. No call to repentance, no scolding. She calls on the name of the Lord to bless her son And then she does something incredibly surprising. She breaks the second commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, in the making of an idol. The making of an idol here is very interesting and at the the same time, very revealing. She makes an idol and sets up a shrine for God in a land where there are idols on every corner. I mean, you know as well as I do, as we read through Judges, that the the, the alien nations have not been driven out of the land. There are Canaanites and Amorites and Amalekites and and, and every kind of ite that you can imagine under the sun. They are in the land with Israel. There are Baals, Baals. There are Asherah poles. There are every kind of idol under the sun. And yet, she calls on the name of the Lord to bless her son, which means that she doesn't really go into the Baals and the Asherahs. But then she makes an idol. Why go to the trouble? Why go to the trouble? Well, I think that in in so doing, it's an indicator of the shallow, superficial relationship with God. And it's her attempt to shape God into something more acceptable to her sensibilities. Or is the idol making the result of what she believes is sensible to her about God? You see, when you think about an idol, we think, we think about something that is either shaped and you bow down and worship it, which is sort of the first level of idol understanding. The second level of uh, idol understanding is that uh, it's really uh, you know, the thing that kind of controls us. Second level. But then the third level of idol understanding is that an idol symbolizes the God that we want rather than the God that is. Huge difference. An idol symbolizes the God that we want rather than the God that is. 
in so doing, making of this idol, the idol that we want, we demolish the possibility of intimacy. I mean, how, stepping out of idols, stepping out of religion, stepping out of judges for a moment, think about your own marriage. How, how intimate can you be with your spouse if your spouse is only a fantasy or your spouse, is only, your spouse is only made up of the components that you like? And you are unaccepting or at least ignorant or, or at least rejecting those parts, those components of the spouse that you don't like. How, how intimate are you going to be with that spouse? If you're only seeing the part of that spouse that you really like, that makes sense to you, that you understand, that, that you like, that has some kind of a payoff for you, that has, has some kind of a, a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a pleasure for you. I mean, if you think of your spouse as only a sex object, how intimate, not in the Hollywood sense of that word, but how intimate, that's by, you know, the, the, the Hollywood sense of intimacy is biology. Intimacy is that eye-to-eye, face-to-face, heart-to-heart, soul-to-soul, serve and be served, known and, 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 and to know and to celebrate and to be celebrated and to serve and to be served. That, that kind of knowing, that kind of oneness that's talked about in Genesis 2.24 where two people, male and female, as God has made them, are brought together and they become one. How much intimacy can there be if you only see them at one level? Somebody that takes care of children. Somebody that fulfills me sexually. Somebody that brings home a paycheck. Somebody that might protect me. Somebody that changes the light bulbs and takes out the garbage. That intimacy is going to be so demolished because you only see a pie slice of what's there. If we create an idol, jumping back into... The, the spiritual aspect of idolatry, if we create an idol that underscores only love, God is just love, 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 then we miss His holiness. And we miss His call to discipleship. But if we make an idol that underscores only His holiness, then we miss His graciousness and His providence and His personality. This is why the making of idols to represent God was forbidden from the very beginning. Idolatry is at the baseline creating a God out of only the parts that appeal to you, which is another way of saying that you're getting a God that serves you. When faith, that is trusting God and being obedient to God, is about getting your heart to serve the God who created the heavens and the earth and yet knows the number of the hairs that you have on your head, and who also knows what you need before you even ask Him. And what was true of the man Micah and his mother is, is true of the entire tribe of Dan. In, in Judges 18, verse 1, in those days the tribe, after we're told that, that there was no king in the land, in those days the tribe of the Danites were seeking a place of their own where they might settle because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. How come the Danites are without land? How come the Danites don't have land like all of the other tribes do? We go all the way back to Judges chapter 1, verse 34. The Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain where they were supposed to be because the Amorites were, verse 35, determined. The Amorites were determined. The people who did not know God, the Amorites, 
more determined, more courageous, more brave, more forthright, more tenacious, more brave than the people who profess to know God, the Danites, who are not obedient to God. And the Levite that they steal from Michael's home illustrates this in a, in a metaphorical, geographical kind of way. This, this Levite that is, is made a priest in Micah's home, and when the Danites are on their way to, to, with a fight with, uh, with, with the people whose land they are going to take, they steal this Levite and they say to him, hey, you know, what's better? Being the priest for one guy in one family or being the priest of an entire tribe? And because this Levite is really about, you know, the, the, the acclaim and the achievement and really wants the, the, uh, the, the acclaim that comes from being the priest of a tribe, he goes with them. But he illustrates what's happening geographically, metaphorically, with what's happening spiritually with Israel. He starts out, where's he from? He starts out from Bethlehem of Judah. And in, in, in some years, who is it that's going to come from Bethlehem? great King David, and who ultimately is the great King who comes from Bethlehem, the Christ. He starts out from Bethlehem of Judah, which is known as the city of David and the city of the Messiah. It's the city out of which God brings the kings, the ultimate rescuer. But then he moves away to the hill country of Ephraim to the northeast, and then he ends up going to this place called Laish, which is in the extreme northeast uh, part of, 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 of this Mediterranean part of, of, of the world. It, it's actually near Caesarea Philippi during the time of Jesus. But during the, um, uh, during the time that the judges are being written, he has actually moved from Bethlehem to the hill country of Ephraim to the far northeast end where he is actually outside of the land that God gave his people in Joshua. It's a, metaphor, it's a metaphor for the fact that Israel is moving farther and farther and farther away from God. And not only are they moving from God, but then number two, not only are they spiritually uh, restless because of the idols and because of the lack of intimacy with God and the, the fact that God is away and they become this brute beast, you know, senseless and ignorant before God and losing their foothold, they're spiritually spiraling. And chapter 19 opens... Again, verse 1, we're reminded that Israel doesn't have a king and we see in graphic details the results of not having a king in a human life. We have another Levite this time. He's, he's, he's a fellow with a concubine, which to him makes him the husband of a second-class wife. She's a second-class wife and she's a sex object to him. This Levite, if you get down like verse 27, is not just her husband, but he's also her master. This Levite is in charge of, of, he's supposed to be in charge of making sure that the presence of God is maintained in Israel. The Levites were the people, the tribe that was set aside to make sure that, that the presence of God was maintained in the vision and the, and the foresight of Israel in everything that they did. But this Levite, who is in charge of making the presence of God, making sure that it's maintained in Israel, has lost sight of God in his own life. He does not have this Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 kind of relationship with this woman. She is not his wife. She is his concubine. And the concubine uh, does two things that are incredibly impermissible. The concubine commits adultery, and then, he heads, then she heads to her father's house. Which, as you stand back and, and, and sort of reflect, 
It's, it's very revealing of a relationship with the Levite as both of these are incredibly impermissible. She tries to find support from another man. And when she doesn't find it, when it doesn't pan out, in her desperation, she runs to her father. And so her rejection of this Levite happens in, in sort of two different levels. And yet the Levite waits four months before trying to persuade her to return. And finally he goes to her father, tries to bring her back home. But the father-in-law is over the top hospitable. You know, he wants to leave. He wants to take the concubine back to his home. He says, no, 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 it's too early. Stay another day or so. Eat, eat some food. Stay and eat. And then he gets up there and says, no, 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 stay. It's, it's late. You're not going to make it anywhere. There are no hotel sixes along the way. You're, you're going to start. No, 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 stay, 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 stay. And this goes on for a number of days. And finally, after the father-in-law, the father of the concubine, is convinced that this Levite is not going to press charges, they leave. And they leave and they reach Gibeah in Benjamin. Chapter 19, verses 14-15. And immediately we know that something is wrong in this town. Because no one is offering hospitality. This is a, a honor-driven culture. And it is even to this day. Hospitality. I mean, it's, it's, about, uh, it's about gathering um, uh, honor in your name and for, for your tribe and for your family, your, your family name. You know, it, to have honor is worth more than gold. It, it's it's, it's uh, currency that you can use for influence and, and power and, and, and for good for your family in the country. And the thing that you avoid at all costs is shame. To have shame is to have something that just weighs on you like an anvil for, for years and years and years and years. No way to get out of it unless something incredible, nearly a miracle, is able to take place. To, to change the shame to honor. And one of the ways, one of the best ways that you get honor in this culture is to show hospitality. And so immediately we know something is wrong because no one in this town square. This is not outside of Israel. This is, this is not some place where, where the aliens or, or where the ites are living. This is Israel itself. He comes to the square and no one is offering hospitality. First clue, something's wrong in this town. And then finally there's an old fellow that shows up after he's been working in the fields, finally does show up and tells him, whatever you do, whatever you do, don't stay the night in the square. In fact, you should probably come home with me. And then we see why in verse 22. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house and pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owed the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. Which is sort of code. For the, it's a reminder of sorts of the kind of evil and the kind of wickedness that had been pervasive in places like Sodom and Gomorrah. And so, because of hospitality in the way that it was viewed, the demand to have this visitor come out, this will not do. And so the old fellow offers his virgin daughter and the Levite's concubine the concubine is taken by the wicked men of the city and she is raped to death. And she is found the next morning having made it to the threshold of the house and with her hands on the threshold. For some reason, that Levite was able to sleep that night. And the next morning he gets up from sleep opens the door, steps over her, and tells her to get up and to get going. And the text says, but there was no answer. 
And he puts her on an animal and gets her home. And then he takes a knife and he cuts her into 12 pieces and sends the pieces to the tribes of Israel. And Israel nearly destroys the tribe of Benjamin in retaliation. And at the ground level, what we see is that Israel is destroying itself. You know, up through the 16th chapter, it's, you know, it's, it's the lack of faith and the trust and it's God working with Israel and here come the oppressor nations and you know, they have rejected God and gone after the idols and God becomes angry because of their faithlessness. It's like committing adultery with Him. But He's patient and He's loving. He brings the rescuer, the judge, to come and to rescue them and, and, and to set things straight again. And it's, it's now Israel, though, that is destroying itself from the inside out. And it's brutal and it's bloody and it's cruel and it's hard to read. It's hard to read even in a culture like ours where when it comes to somebody dying in a, on the silver screen, we know what it looks like. We, we, it's still hard to read. And what we begin to see is that the whole book is an argument against the belief that we have even to this day, that we as human beings are the solution. That we're the answer to our problem. When what Judges does over and over and over again is to remind us that with uncanny consistency, we create trouble for ourselves that boggles the mind. That without God, and I don't mean just a knowledge of God, but without absorbing God into the very being, the very marrow of our bones and the center of our soul, we are without God, like Asaph said, brute beasts. Over and over and over again in this book, we are reminded that as human beings, we are in need of of a rescuer. That we are in need of a Savior. And so here's Asaph. He's going, you know, I see all of the things that are going on around me and I see the state of my own life and I, I see how people are getting rich around me and I'm beginning to struggle with, with, with this, this idea, this paradigm, this filter of life that supposedly has God in it of, of which I'm supposed to see you know, the goodness of God and the greatness of God and yet I'm not seeing it. I'm seeing everybody else had this great life when my life is not so great and his foot begins to slip and he begins to lose his foothold on the reality, the true reality, the profound reality of, of God God of Yahweh, the Creator, the Father, His Savior in His life. But towards the end, as he begins to, 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 to think deeply about God and to get rid of the images of, of God that are idolatrous, that the, the idol in his heart that was God was you know, the part of God that was going to make him rich or somehow bestow some kind of blessing on him that was going to make his life easy and without pain. 
And as he begins to kind of wrestle with that and to see the kind of person that he is in light of God and especially when God is not in his life, the psalm begins to change. He says, you know, without God, my, my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered. Senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And in the Psalms, one of the most specific res- uh, references to the resurrection, he says, and afterwards, you take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far away from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. And the and, and the, the Bible from Judges on begins to get sharper and sharper and sharper until you find not just human kings who are reminded that there is a great king in this line of great kings that's going to come and to be the ultimate king because He's going to be the ultimate Savior and Rescuer of humanity. But then you get the prophets who begin to speak very point blank about there's going to be this One who is going to fulfill all of... There's going to be this One that's going to fulfill all of these words that the prophets speak about. Coming from Bethlehem. Being born of a virgin. Our iniquities being placed upon His shoulder. His kingdom lasting forever. He will be a Prince of Peace. He will not look like we expect Him to look. He will be faithful to God and faithful to God's will in ways that we cannot. He will have at His disposal means of of, of coming out from His enemies, but like a sheep led to its shears will remain silent. And He will be crushed for us. And by His wounds, will be healed. He saves us from being brute beasts. He saves us from being senseless and ignorant. He saves us from ourselves. And in forgiving our sins and putting His Spirit in us, gives us every day the opportunity, the opportunity, the opportunity become the human beings that we were always intended to be. And not just in the sense of a morality. Not in the sense that we just don't lie anymore and we don't lust anymore. But the human beings that we were always intended to be, that from from the very beginning in the presence of God, that it was a life of peace and of, of, of joy. 
It, it was a life in which there is no anxiety because the Lord is near in Genesis 1 and 2. He is right there beside us in the cool of the morning, the cool of the evening, walking with us in that garden. That is being restored to us. And afterward, you will take me into your glory. Aesop says. The nearness of God, friends. The nearness of God. That is our good. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now, and perhaps there are ways that we can minister to you tonight. Maybe you, you kind of identify with Aesop that there's some distance between you and God, and you feel senseless and ignorant. There's this reptilian re- reversion that you're experiencing right now. We can help you with that. We can pray with you. We can study with you. We can stand beside you as you find your way back into the presence of God, which is your good. And if that describes you tonight, we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds who are going to be down here at the front as we stand and praise God together.